Welcome to the COVID What Comes Next podcast with Dr. Ashish Jha, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health and a globally respected pandemic scientist and physician. Every week here, Dr. Jha will analyze events of the previous several days and offer his assessment and guidance for what lies ahead. I'm your host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal and the USA Today Network. Good morning, Ashish. How are you today? Good morning, Wayne. I'm fine. How are you? Doing okay. Thank you. So we've been getting a lot of questions regarding masks, which is obviously a very critical issue. And and here are a few of them. Are paper better than cloth and vice versa? Should people double mask? How many layers do the best masks have? Are N95 masks the gold standard and can non-medical people get them? Uh, And also, how can you determine whether a company selling masks is reputable or not? In other words, are you getting what what they say? Yeah, these are fabulous questions. So let's break it down a little bit. Let's talk about masks and let's talk about uh, what makes a mask a good mask versus a bad mask. And there are two features of a mask that are important. Uh, And they're both, they both start with F, it's fit and filtration. So filtration is how well does the mask filter out droplets, aerosols, uh, the little things that are going to have the virus in it. Uh, And then the second is how good is the fit? If you can have a terrific mask from a filtration, but if the fit is not very good, then basically you're going to end up blowing out virus or or breathing in virus because the fit wasn't good. So um, those are to me two separate features. So how do you determine fit and filtration? Um, In general, High quality, it's a surgical mask that you can buy in lots of places, tend to have pretty good filtration. And the key is really fit. And when you think about fit, think about, are you getting a lot of air coming out of the sides? Are you getting a lot of air coming out of the top? Uh, are your glasses getting really fogged up? If all of that is happening, uh, then you don't have a great fit and you want something with a bit of a tighter fit. Uh, and surgical masks tend to be both pretty good filtration and good fit. Now, cloth masks, can be both as well, uh, but usually you want multi-layer cloth mask. And if you really want high-quality filtration, a lot of masks also have a little space in between for putting in a little filter. Um, those are pretty popular. You can get those as well. Uh, but the key is to really make sure you have a pretty good seal. Now, let's talk about higher-quality masks like N95s. Uh, N95s are largely reserved for doctors, nurses, healthcare workers. It is possible now to get some. Um, Costco, for instance, sells them. Um, The problem with N95s, they're fabulous masks. They're very, very good in terms of filtration. Is in order to get the true benefit, you have to get a really good fit on the mask. And when I'm in the hospital, for instance, and I'm going to be taking care of patients, I have to go get fitted for an N95. It isn't just like I show up and pick up an N95. They fit me and make sure that, the, that it produces a tight seal. That's going to be hard for most people to do at home to do it, but I think you can get it. But there are alternatives, and I'll give you two sets of alternatives, and this will get you into the question of uh, how do you know which ones are reputable. There are KF94s, and there are KN95s. KN95s come from China. They're supposed to be as good as N95s. And, uh, and they're very easy to get. You can get them on Amazon. You can get them on any retail store. The problem with can 95s is some of them are terrific and some of them are, are 
counterfeit or not very good at all. And it's hard to tell exactly which brand and how best to do it. And so I have personally avoided KN95s, mostly because I can't figure out for sure which ones are the best and which ones are reliable. So I go for KF94s. KF94s are made in South Korea, uh, and they all tend to be very high quality. And basically, I've tried a few different KF94s, uh, trying to find one that's a good fit for me. These are disposable masks. They cost about $2 a mask. So they're not super cheap, but they're not super expensive either. Uh, so buy, I buy a pack of 10 for $20 and there are a variety of different types. And so one of the things I would say to folks is if you're looking for a high quality mask, KF94s are a pretty good choice, easy to get. Um, and you can use them, uh, but you may have to try a couple of different types to get, uh, to make sure it's a good fit for you. Last point, double masking. So way I have thought about masks, Wayne, is when I'm out and about, I'm outside going for a walk with a friend, walking with my dog, I largely don't worry about what mask I'm wearing. A cloth mask is fine. Uh, a surgical mask is more than fine. Because being outside and moving around is a very low-risk situation. You just want to put on any mask. Where it's a much bigger deal is when I'm going to be spending time indoors. If I'm going to a grocery store, if I'm going to be indoors for any extended period of time, I will do one of two things. Either always make sure I wear a KF94 or I'll put on a surgical mask and I put on a cloth mask on top of that. And that double masking is for two reasons. That cloth mask gives the surgical mask a really tight seal and it adds an extra layer of filtration. So the final point, I know there's a lot, but I hope that's helpful. Fit and filtration both matter. Uh, you can get pretty good on, uh, using a variety of different choices. Uh, but if you want a really high quality mask, you want to think about an N95, KN95, or a KF94. KF94s are the most reliable and easy to get. Thank you. That is very helpful. And as I said, we've had a lot of interest, you know, internally at, at uh, USA Today and also from our readers and our audience. So what do we make of AstraZeneca hope? putting the rollout of its vaccine on hold in South Africa after a trial of some 2,000 people found it offers, and I'm quoting, minimal protection against mild and moderate cases of the South Africa variant. Yeah, I would say um, it's an important development, but we shouldn't overstate its importance. So let's talk about that. Um, the South Africa variant is the one that people worry about in terms of what will our vaccines work effectively. And this was a very small trial. The 2000 person trial it was in relatively young, healthy people. And it appeared to not have much of a benefit, but in a small trial, you can miss a big effect. So on one hand, I'm not overreacting and not thinking, oh my God, the AstraZeneca vaccine just doesn't work. I don't think that's our response. It may not work, but it may work. And we just, this trial wasn't uh, big enough to answer that. The second question, the, and arguably every bit as important, if not more so, is what about severe disease? The J&J vaccine, for instance, tried in South Africa with the South Africa variant, seemed to do extremely well in preventing severe disease. A little less well on preventing mild to moderate disease, but very well on preventing severe disease. The bottom line is, that's probably the thing we care about the most. And my guess, Wayne, but now I'm really into guesswork, is that AstraZeneca's vaccine is probably going to provide protection against severe disease of the South Africa variant as well. But I really don't know that. I'm guessing that based on what we've seen with some other vaccines. Uh, 
So what it means for us in the United States is J&J is going to go up for authorization in a couple of weeks. I think it's going to get authorized. I think J&J, Moderna, and Pfizer will all offer a, a pretty high degree of protection against the South Africa variant. And they will uh, offer excellent protection against the other variants that are around so far based on everything we know. And if and or when AstraZeneca comes up for authorization in the United States, hopefully we'll have a lot more data by then on what has happened with the AstraZeneca vaccine and uh, the South Africa variant. Um, but it's only one of the variants and probably the one that's circulating at the lowest levels right now in the United States. So not so worried about that for us. So how do we keep ahead of this? You know, we're expecting or, or scientists, including yourself, are expecting more variants to potentially emerge. How do you keep ahead of this in terms of vaccines? It, it's a yeah. big question, and I, I don't even have a clue as to the answer. Yeah. So here's the way to think about it. Variants don't arise randomly. They arise in contexts where you're having relatively large outbreaks. Okay. And so to the extent that we look at this global pandemic and think our job is to vaccinate Americans and that's it, we are asking for trouble. Because imagine that America is vaccinated, everybody in the United States is vaccinated, and let's say it's summer or fall of this year, and then there are large outbreaks happening in Brazil or India or elsewhere. Those outbreaks could lead to new variants that could then end up subjecting all of us and making us all vulnerable again. So the way to keep on top of it, number one strategy, is to help everybody bring their pandemic uh, under control. And that actually requires an all-of-government response. So I've been actually arguing that the foreign policy of the United States right now should be to lean in on countries like Brazil that have done a relatively poor job managing their pandemic and pushing them and, and offering assistance and help, but also pressuring them uh, to work on controlling their pandemic. Because if everybody can get their pandemic under control, it dramatically lowers the risk of new variants. Second is global surveillance, looking for these variants on an ongoing basis. And third is having the capability of updating our vaccines. We think the technology would take about six weeks to update a vaccine for a new variant. But then you'd have to go do some testing. You wouldn't have to go through all the trials, but you'd have to do some testing. And then you'd have to make it and, and produce it and, and get it out to people. So uh, we want to not be in the business of having to constantly update our vaccines and constantly be revaccinating the American people. Uh, instead, I'd like to be ahead of it uh, keep it suppressed, know when it's coming, and deal with it much more effectively that way. So this is an example of where American leadership in the world could have a very positive effect. And I think you're saying it's required. It's required. And to be perfectly honest, no one else is going to do it if we don't. Right. And this is why the whole strategy of America first, we're going to vaccinate ourselves, we're not going to be part of the global community, was so incredibly naive and short-sighted. Because there is no America without the rest of the world. We can't live in a bubble. Not, and the global pandemic, if that hasn't shown us that, I don't know what will. Uh, but you can I put don't in, either. <laughs> yeah. You can put in all the travel restrictions you want. You can shut down all the borders you want. Viruses will seep through. So we have an audience question, and I'll sort of summarize it. But this person has allergies to medicine, food, and the environment and is really seeking guidance on whether to get vaccinated or not. And I guess tried, you know, tried a couple of avenues, did, did, did not get an answer. Yep. So maybe you can speak generally to this issue. Yeah, this issue comes up a lot. Um, and, and people have been asking me, uh, 
And my, my parents, my mom has, a, has had a pretty severe allergy, allergic reactions in the past, ended up in the hospital. And so she's about to get her first shot tomorrow. So she was asking, what do I do? Uh, so I'll give you the same answer I gave my mom, which is the way I think about this. So first of all, allergic reactions about Moderna and Pfizer vaccines happen. We think about one in 100,000 to maybe one in every 200,000. So pretty infrequent, right? Like pretty rare, uh, but not zero. And you want to uh, pay attention to that. Uh, second is we think it's in people who have, had, who have uh, allergies to specific things that are in the vaccine. And we don't think that necessarily cross-reacts with food allergies. So if you have food allergies, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, if you've had severe allergic reactions to medicines, uh, I would definitely bring an EpiPen. Most places these days are keeping EpiPen kind of equivalents around if you're going to give uh, a vaccine to people. Uh, but I would bring it. That's what I told my mom, bring your EpiPen. Um, but I certainly would not forego it. It, the only people who should forego it are people who've had severe allergic reactions to vaccines. Uh, if you've had that, then I think you need to talk to your doctor and see if there's an alternative. Uh, but I would generally say it's good for everybody to get. And if you've had severe allergic reactions, uh, let people know uh, when you're getting vaccinated, bring an EpiPen uh, and just be monitored for 30 minutes afterwards. And, and, uh, and most people will do very, very well. Thank you. And again, I would say if you have a question for Dr. Ja, send it to gwmiller at providencejournal.com and write question for Dr. Ja in the subject field. Thanks again, as always. This is such a tremendous resource uh, for, for everyone, and uh, we appreciate it. You stay safe, as always. Thank you, Wayne, and uh, you do as well. And I think we're going to get some more snow up here in, uh, in Providence today. So. <laughs> Uh, stay safe for that as well. And I look forward to connecting with you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.